imagine a war. A war that has lasted centuries, a war which has transformed an entire planet into a desolate no-man's land. A war where time itself is being used as a weapon. You can create zones of decelerated time and bring the enemy troops to a standstill. You can create storms of accelerated time and reduce the opposition to dust in a matter of seconds. But now the war has reached a stalemate. Neither the plutocrats or the defaulters have made any gains for over a hundred years. The Doctor, Fitz, and Angie arrive at Isolation Station 40, a military research establishment on the verge of a breakthrough. A breakthrough which will change the entire course of the war. They have found a way to send soldiers back in time. But time travel is a primitive, unpredictable, and dangerous business, and not without its own sinister side effects. Welcome back to the Secret Library of St. John the Beheaded for another episode of We're All Stories in the End. And this month, we're entering a world of singularly creepy horror in Jonathan Morris's Anacrophobia. It was published in 2002, so let's celebrate its 20th anniversary in style. Here is the synopsis. Whilst travelling in time, the TARDIS suddenly shakes violently. The Eighth Doctor shuts it down, concluding that it is tearing itself apart by attempting to escape a force that is forcing it to land. As the Doctor, Angie and Fitz emerge onto a wasteland, they are captured by soldiers. They learn that they have landed on a planet that is host to a war between two factions of humans, the Plutocrat Empire and rebels known as Defaulters. Both sides have weapons that can slow the flow of time or speed it up in small areas, but because of this, both sides have reached a stalemate. The soldiers take the Doctor to an officer called Lane. She assumes the Doctor is the time expert the plutocrats were sending, and the Doctor decides to agree. Lane takes them to a military outpost called Station 40. When they arrive, one of the soldiers, a man called Bishop, who had his arm aged by a time storm, is placed in a decelerated time capsule until his fate is decided. The commander of the base, Commander Bragg, reveals that one of his scientists, Dr. Patterson, has developed a time capsule which they plan to use to stop the war from ever happening. Two men, Ash and Norton, get inside the machine and go back in time, but the machine spins out of control. The doctor brings the machine back to the present, and Ash and Norton are placed in quarantine and develop disorientation, anacrophobia, memory loss and physical trauma. The Doctor finds a breach in the machine's walls, meaning that the machine's interior was exposed to the time vortex. Meanwhile, Norton's condition is getting worse. Time is moving more slowly around him and he cannot recognise his own face as his past is slowly being erased. The Doctor decides to travel in the time capsule and Fitz demands to go with him, but Bragg learns that the Doctor is not the time expert and stops Angie from carrying on with controlling the capsule. Meanwhile, inside the capsule, time slows down and something begins banging on the door. Lane goes to check Ash and Norton, but they attack her, and in her rush to leave, she tears her time-proof suit. 
Time then jumps back one minute and Lane contacts Bragg, giving Angie the chance to overpower him and return the Doctor and Fitz to the present. However, another staff member, Shaw, overpowers Angie and locks the Doctor and his companions away. Time begins to flow more slowly over Lane and time jumps back a minute, confirming that Ash and Norton infected Lane, who has now infected Bragg. A man called Mistletoe arrives at the station, claiming to be an auditor sent to review the experiments. Shaw releases the Doctor Fitz and Angie and brings them up to the lab as Mistletoe moves Bishop to the quarantine ward. Bishop becomes infected and Ash Norton and Bishop's faces all turn into clock faces. The Doctor uses gas to knock out the infected and, after examining them, reveals they are turning into clocks. Elsewhere, Patterson sees Bragg's face turn into a clock, but when he reaches the Doctor to warn him, his face turns into a clock and he finds he can travel throughout his own lifetime. The Doctor warns him not to, as he fears that the infected are offered the chance to change their personal timelines, but if they do, they have the history erased and become empty vessels for the clock creatures to take over. After hearing this, Patterson commits suicide. Fitz and Shaw go looking for the others, but as they do, a defaulter bombing causes safety doors to lower. Shaw takes Fitz down to the lower levels, leaving the Doctor and Angie trapped with Bragg. The Doctor opens the door and seals it again, but Bragg rewinds time to get through. The Doctor and Angie seal themselves in the control room with mistletoe, but it is too late for the clock creatures to rewind time. Fitz and Shaw are attacked by Lane, but due to her time reversal abilities he cannot shoot her. Lane releases Ash, Bishop and Norton from the quarantine ward as the Doctor, Angie and Mistletoe flee to the medical bay. The Doctor examines battle reports and finds them full of strange tactics. Mistletoe then admits that the war is being prolonged to increase profit for the Empire. The Doctor then decides to use mustard gas on the creatures as it takes an hour to take effect and the clocks will not be able to rewind time for long enough to save themselves. Fitz and Shaw retrieve mustard gas from the stores and release it. Angie cannot find the Doctor until Fitz brings him back into the medical bay, having found him outside with no gas mask on. The infected people slowly die, but Mistletoe remembers that Bishop was taken to Station 1, the main headquarters of the Plutocrats, to study his infection. The station has a population of 60,000, all of whom will be infected. The survivors are sent out in a van in pursuit of Dr Hammond, only to find his van ambushed by defaulters, but the whole area has been frozen in time due to Bishop's capsule being smashed. Dr Hammond reveals himself to be a robot, while Shaw reveals he's a defaulter agent. As Shaw prepares to shoot everyone, an accelerated time bomb brings time back to normal, and a defaulter soldier shoots Shaw and injures Bishop. Hammond's power supply explodes, which kills the defaulter. Bishop uses his powers to rewind time, kill the defaulter and flee from Hammond. However, his face turns into a clock. Plutocratic soldiers mistakenly rescue Bishop, but as the Doctor pursues them, they go through a small patch of decelerated time with broken shielding and arrive at Station 1 months later. They find that all of Station 1 has been converted, but they are allowed to pass through unharmed. At the Central Audit Bureau, they meet the actuaries, robot accountants who have been running both sides of the war for profit. However, they cannot remember why they are making money or who for, as they have not received any contact from the Empire for a hundred years. 
They funded the time travel experiments to try to find their purpose. However, Bishop enters and infects the Doctor. As the clocks try to tempt him, he remembers that as the clocks exist outside of normal time, they depend on the hole in time that the capsule tore. The Doctor travels along his own timeline to the point where he sealed the airlock before the mustard gas was released. He runs to the lab and fills the time capsule with chrononium, the material used to make the time weapons. Then he sets up a clockwork timer. After exposing himself to the gas, he returns to the present without having changed history. The capsule then launches, sealing the hole, the clocks are killed, and the Doctor passes out. Mistletoe reveals himself as Sabbath to Fitz and Angie. Sabbath explains that the clocks were not invading the universe but fleeing Sabbath's allies in the time vortex, and that both the clocks and the Doctor were manipulated into coming here in the hope that the Doctor would destroy them. Sabbath then leaves, and Fitz and Angie carry the Doctor back to the TARDIS. So, let's fire up the space-time visualiser and see if we can find our old friend DK to talk to about anacrophobia. Let's start by asking you, um, what was your first Doctor Who story that you remember seeing? I don't really like to admit this, but it was Creature from the Pit. And why is that Why is that something that you don't like to admit? I mean, you know, you didn't have any choice in the matter. No, no. Uh, because when I first saw it, it absolutely terrified the bejesus out of me. And right. Now, when you look back on it, it's held up as an example of one of the worst, you know, special effects sequences in in Doctor Who. It would have been nice for me to be able to say, oh, I wish I, uh, you know, I, I started on City of Death, which I believe is the second story I saw. But, <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, if I'm being truthful, it was it was Creature from the Pit. It's it's the, um, the monsters that surrounded Canine at the end of one episode. I had nightmares for an entire week after that. That's fair enough. I mean, so my first story that I can remember seeing was full circle and I'm still terrified of spiders and there might well be a link there. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I do think Doctor Who is responsible for a great many of our phobias over the years. I'm trying to think what else I'm scared of. Daleks. Uh, yep. Check. Weirdly, um, weirdly enough, the thing that scared me even more than the monsters was Tom Baker. Yes, I know exactly what At you mean. At the start, with his wide staring eyes, and he was just drawing you down into the vortex, and then you had the, the TARDIS, obviously, and I was scared about what lay behind the doors of the TARDIS. It was, it's a very primal thing for me, but I was one of those children that did used to hide behind the, uh, the sofa. Well, I'll tell you something that, that scared me more than anything in Doctor Who, and that was um, the end credits of Wurzel Gummidge. You know that bit where he's on the cross and he kind of falls forward into the camera? Yes. That yes. terrified me so profoundly when I was, you know, four or five or whatever. I, d I don't blame you. I mean, I can't speak for what the reboot is like, but when you look back at the Pertwee Gummidge, 
it's very, very dark, you know, and he takes his head off and he always used to terrify me, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So as you, um, I'm guessing you then sort of started watching Doctor Who uh, as it as it continued. What kind of stories are your, are your, you know, your cup of tea? I would be lying if I didn't say, I you know you, you everyone likes the, uh, the the stories that feature the the most famous monsters you know the Daleks the Cybermen that kind of thing, but it's the little tips of the hat to historical stories such as the uh, the Great Forever London in Visitation that's one yeah. that always stands out to me absolutely love that uh, the you know even onto the New Who like things like the Unquiet Dead where he meets Charles Dickens. Any anything like that, I love it. I do love a, a new, a new type of monster. Yes, it's great to see the the old favourites, but after a while, it can become fairly repetitive. It's so uh, it's nice when someone like Moffat comes along and he throws the silence in there and he throws uh, the Weeping Angels in there. Although I personally, I think they've reached the limit on on the Weeping Angels right now, but. Uh, mm. It's it's nice to have that little bit of unfamiliarity seeded amongst the commonplace. And back when I was young, when I was watching the uh, the Peter Davison era, you're not really seeing them. Well, I'd never experienced them personally, other than repeats from what I'd seen when I think they did the Five Faces of Doctor Who. Yeah. Back then, and and they did Warriors of the Deep with the Silurians and the Sea Devils. And I was, I mean, back then, you, as shoddy as the Merker is, you're not going to be concentrating on that. It's just the fact that you've got these two iconic monsters that nobody's seen for quite some time. And they're in, a, you know, a kind of team up crossover situation. I, I love things like that. It's, it's nice when they take elements that they've used elsewhere and, pepper them mm. it, I, I'm always, I always feel Doctor Who's best when it subverts your expectations and I think that's why I like anacrophobia so much mm. if I'm being so did you did you make the jump to the books kind of when they happened or, or did you get into them a little bit later and have to catch up or, or what's your story there it was a little bit later I worked uh when i i've i've been a fan of you know all aspects of genre b doctor who star trek star wars that kind of thing but i would switch in little phases i would jump from one to the other depending on my mood and obviously by the time uh who had finished with uh survival it it, it had passed into memory for me I wasn't a regular reader of DWM. I can't pretend that I was. Uh, I would see the occasional new adventure in the uh, comic book store that I frequented. I think mm. I, the one that stood out to me was Strange England. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. But I never really bothered. Mm. And then I ended up at, at a job in, I was working at WH Smith's in Sheffield. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. And. Steve Lyons' Head Games had just been published. And there was something about that cover 
that just instantly grabbed my attention. So I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's uh, yeah, yeah, but describe the, it anyway. <laughs> it's yes, it's it's basically it's sat around uh, set around the console room in the TARDIS, and uh, Melanie Bush has stood there screaming in that way that Melanie Bush did, and you have <laughs> the imposter doctor holding a big gun and just looking outwards at the audience, breaking the fourth wall knowingly. And there was just something really unexpected about that. As I say, it's, it, 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 it subverted expectations. And mm. I thought, I, I really must try this. So I picked it up and I went through it in a, I think it was a couple of days because obviously with real life events and things like that. But uh, I had no idea what was going on because obviously it was a follow up to, uh, I believe, Conundrum earlier in the range. And, That's right. Yeah. And, but I, all I knew is I loved it. And I went back and I tried to get as many as I possibly could. I believe the one after that was Cat's Cradle, Witchmark. Again, it had got a very different cover to what I expected on a Doctor, Doctor Who novel. Uh, you know, I believe it was a unicorn. Uh, and yeah, I pretty much went from there. I've, I've read all the, the new adventures, although my memory <laughs> in these latter days is not that great. <laughs> when it came to the Eighth Doctor Adventures, I was incredibly, I, I think I've told you this in, in one of the recordings, I was incredibly disappointed because we went straight from dying days into the Eight Doctors. And yeah. Terence, Uncle Terence, as much as I love him, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was such a step down. And it wasn't yeah. then until Alien Bodies that, I, that I, I picked up. But I believe even after that, it got to... A couple of books later, I believe it was Longest Day, and it, I remembered this listening to your Alien Bodies episode the other day, where you said you you kind of dropped off around the time of Kersal. Yeah, and I did a similar thing. I it, it got to Longest Day, and it wasn't really gripping me, and so I would leave it alone for a bit, and then I think I came back towards when I knew Interference was coming out with uh, written by Lawrence Miles. And I was basically on again, off again. Yeah. Uh, but when uh, anacrophobia hit, it, I was at a very, by this point, my obsession with Doctor Who had grown because it was the only tie-in novel series that I was reading. I mean, you know, I, I would read my, my regular books and my bios and things like that. But when it came to tie-in media, it would be Doctor Who every time. I mean, and, and I could find elements in, in novels that I would say some would not appreciate. I mean, I, I think I'm the only one of my friend group at the time that liked uh, Divided Loyalties. But it, it just, the entire concept grabbed me. And the fact of where they were taking the, the books, yes, they were, they were the too broad and too deep for the small screen. And you kind of lost that at the start of the... Uh, of the eighth doctor range but mm. they were building it back up again and it, it just had me hooked and it, it, it came to a point that no matter where i went i had a doctor who novel with me i went home there was always the doctor who novel at the side of the bed and yeah when it came to around an, uh, 
and acrophobia. I think I started again not long before Adventures of Henrietta Street. Right. And by that point, I was so obsessed with Doctor Who. I was I was actively trying to create my own submission at the time. And uh, I'd become friendly with one of the authors, Steve Emerson. Oh, wow. OK. He, 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 was, he was a very odd occurrence, to be honest, because uh, I read Casualties of War and I found out he lived not far from where I lived. And I said, you know, if you're ever around, I would like to buy you a beer because I enjoyed that. And he basically wrote back and said, well, why not pop round for tea one day? And I was a little taken aback, but uh, I was like, okay. So, yeah, I uh, ended up hanging around with Steve for a little while. Uh, we've, we've lost touch since then. But at that point during, during my life, there wasn't really, well, I say there wasn't much going on. It was, it was hectic, to be honest with you. But mm. the only thing that I can really trace it back to is what was happening in Doctor Who at the time. And obviously this was before the, well, not long before, actually, the announcement of the new series. And at that point, I was I was just lapping up everything I could. I started attending, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, the uh, Fitzroy Tavern meetups down in London. I'm I'm aware of the uh, of the licensed premises. Yeah. And I would love it. I mean, I have really fond memories of being there. But I was such an extreme non-entity. I'm I'm not I I wouldn't say I'm the biggest socializer. So even though I was, you know, sat at the table drinking this you know Stephen Moffat and I think at one point I had a half drunken conversation with Lauren Smiles while standing at a urinal but other than that I I would imagine no one knows who the heck I am (laughs) other than the fact that this is this is going to be extremely embarrassing but what the heck you you said don't say anything incriminating but exactly uh, I I was at a point where I was working in the, the, the video games industry. Right. I was just coming to the end of working in the video games industry because uh, at, at around about that time, they were closing the office. And I had grown my hair quite long. And for, for me, I say quite long. It was, it was like shoulder length. Mm-hmm. And it, it had a tendency to go quite curly. And I'd also made the extremely silly decision of being, I I was in a vintage clothes shop at one point in Sheffield and I found a blue velvet jacket. Oh, lovely. And it was, it was, it was slightly on the smaller side, but it it, it still fit. So, but I, I, I ended up wearing that to the Fitzroy Tavern and with my long hair, there were more than a couple of people that thought I was just seriously going, going down cosplaying as Paul McGann. (laughs) Um, and that wasn't the intent at all but uh i i I think that's if if anybody does know does know me from that time they'll just see me as the idiot who was cosplaying as paul mcgann but uh but yeah it was a it was a, a really great time back then and i was living i think i was living on my own and i never actually used the the bedroom to sleep when it came to sleeping at night, I would uh, just drag my duvet 
and sleep into the living room and sleep on the couch and drift off to MTV because back then MTV actually played music. Yeah, I remember. And, <laughs> yeah, years ago when it was good. Exactly. <laughs> and but every day I used to, regardless of what I was doing, I would always head into the bedroom, sit on the bed, and read a few chapters of a Doctor Who novel. And it was it was just heaven for me. It uh, it 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 really is one of the 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 greatest. The I, I know it sounds very small potatoes compared to what some people say, but you know my my monthly trips to the Tav, and I mean I would come back very very dishevelled. I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't get back until five a.m. the next morning because uh, I had to catch the last I believe the last bus from London Victoria, which was at ten thirty. And yeah. it went pretty much all around the houses. So he wouldn't get back to Sheffield until around 5 a.m. So Lord. I would tramp back to my flat, maybe get half an hour, an hour sleep. And then I would uh, head back into work. And uh, yeah, I just, I just, back then, it, everything seemed to be Doctor Who. And I think it kind of culminated with the 2003 Panopticon. I think that was one of the last times I went down to London because uh, I went travelling shortly after that, and I'd never really went back when I returned to the UK. But I remember, I remember it all. It's it's one of the most vivid periods of my life. Well, I mean that's an absolutely amazing story. Um, you know, you're 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 sort of at once a kind of um, you know you're you're dressed up like Paul McGann maybe, but you're sleeping like <laughs> Fox Mulder, never going in the bedroom. Um, yes, <laughs> remarkable stuff. And and having a wee with Lawrence Miles, I mean, it doesn't get any more rock and roll than that. I mean, I, I guess you know, it's it, it's it's odd because he he I, I'm I'm friends with a girl who knew him. I won't say intimately, but she was very friendly with him and they were always talking. But I didn't. I'm one of these people that if there's a group of people talking, I don't like to intrude. I'm, I'm more the type that will hang back with a drink and just sit there and get blindly drunk, which is probably, you know, why I was so disheveled the morning after. But uh, I'd, I'd always wanted to ask him because at that point as well, another one of my obsessions, I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar with it, was uh, Grant Morrison's run on Doom Patrol. Yeah, I, I noticed a lot of a lot of ideas and a lot of concepts in Miles's books. I'm not saying that they were taken from Grant Morrison, but I had the feeling that Miles may have been influenced somewhat by Morrison's work, and I'd always wanted to ask him this, and that's what I—that's the question I ended up asking him at the urinal. Oh. And I just said, "Can I? Yeah, I just said, can I just ask?" do you read Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol? And you're like, oh, yeah, I love it. And I'm like, oh, cool. And that was the limit of our, our conversation. <laughs> but I, I came out of that bathroom feeling incredibly justified. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's, let's look at my notes. So Anacrophobia came out in March of 2002. And as you say, we were about 18 months away from the announcement that the show would one day be coming back. 
So for me, probably the same as you, I guess, the books were a kind of comfort blanket thing. I mean, it, it didn't feel like there would ever be any more TV Doctor Who, but it was it was a nice kind of, you know, bit of continuity in life as we were all making the transition from, you know, being a kid, being a teenager, being a student going to university whatever starting work it was it was a nice constant to have in your life um oh definitely that's I mean, that's, that's my that's excuse yeah no it's 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 100 true i i mean i mean everyone asks what is your favorite era of doctor who and even now i'm hard pressed to say well actually it was the wilderness years because some of the stories that were coming out at that point uh, I, I, even to this day, I don't think you can uh, you can hold a candle to them. No, and and I think as as the more we do this this particular show, and we throw up all these um, all these instances where this in the new series happens because it was written in two thousand and one in a EDA or a, a new adventure by so and so, we're finding that these books are more and more the kind of um kind of melting pot from which all all new doctor who you know if not derives outright then certainly doffs its cap definitely definitely i mean so reading this one it was it's it's oh sorry no 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 you speak (laughs) (laughs) i was just going to say reading this it it's amazing how much as you're reading you think you know this this obviously has influenced this story and this story and and but you can't quite be sure and you think maybe i'm reading too much into it and maybe you know the author of that particular story read something else because obviously one thing influences another but uh, several times throughout this you just think oh this is this is just the empty child or you know this is under the lake yeah yeah those are actually two really good um, you know uh stories to pick up on so um so you 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 liked anacrophobia it's fair to say <laughs> uh yes very much so and, and when i first started it this time i, I was thinking i was thinking did i look back on this with rose tinted spectacles but by about the midway point, it clicked into place once more, and I discovered why I loved it so much. And okay, well, yeah, let's let's drill into that. Tell me, tell me why you loved it so much. Well, it, I mean, it's it, it feels when when you first open it, it feels very traditional. It's very much something that you can imagine would slot right into the Pertwee or Baker era. I mean, the visual look of the piece, it's very reminiscent of BC, BBC production design circa 70s. Yep. It has an excessive use of the 40s and 50s stylings with uh, the ongoing conflict between, you know, the disparate factions, the Plutos and the defaulters. It's something we've seen countless times before. Even the small band of bunker inhabitants with their, you know, their idiosyncrasies, they appear to come straight out of BBC casting. Yep. It all feels incredibly overly familiar and to some extent it relies on the illusion of i don't want to 
phrase it this way, but I'm going to call it as I see it. It relies on the illusion of cheap production design, almost yep. to the point where your initial expectations are that it surely takes on a on Earth or a colony very close to us, simply to excuse the anachronistic technology. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's only a few pages in that it says it states that it's on it's on a colony until that point i'm not sure how you felt but i was convinced it was on earth yeah i didn't um i mean for a start i think at least a couple of these guys are wearing glasses they're sort of smoking fags they're looking a bit you know disheveled in my mind and as you say so well the the um the way that morris depicts and describes the base is straight out of a 70s doctor who tv production so yeah yeah you're absolutely um dropped right into the world and and the the world that's created while at once fairly complicated is nevertheless very familiar to you know let's be honest to everyone who would have read the book because i don't think anyone read the books who hadn't grown up watching these shows um exactly yeah and yeah so i'm trying to and I, I really can't remember whereabouts we are kind of in in the EDA range at that point. This book is. It's number sort of near 50, the end. It's 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 heading that way. It's number yeah. 54. We'd, we'd, we'd been re- we've had this range for about five years at this point. Mm. And it had come not long after another Lawrence. Uh, it had come after a couple of really outstanding books which were miles's adventures of henrietta street yeah and uh paul mars mad dogs and englishman that's and right at that the way i look at it with the range obviously you have to keep the range fresh so every so often you had you would have one of these books that would upset the apple cart so to speak like yeah. and invariably enough they usually ended up being one of Lawrence Miles's works such as <laughs> Alien Bodies Interference Adventure yep. uh, and I think it's to the detriment of the books that come between those that to some extent they all kind of get overlooked unless they're very and, and unless people find them incredibly outstanding and to me I know it was all. I think it was only his uh, second BBC novel at this point. I know he's gone on to be very prolific in the world of, of Doctor Who, but I think up until this point, Jonathan Morris's uh, Who novelization. I think there was Festival of Death, which was a PDA, and I, I know it was well received, but I never dipped into the PDA range as such. Oh, good so man! This no, really, today. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this was really my first experience Mm. with his writing and i'm not going to say it blew me away because it doesn't it and but the reason i like it is because it just simply doesn't try and reinvent the wheel it takes what we know and kind of subverts it and when it comes to anacrophobia in many respects i mean this is um, you know, obviously it's only my opinion, your mileage may vary, but it uh, it's almost a metatextual exploration of the themes contained within, because it does harken back to the show's past and its setting, aesthetics, etc. And then it mines certain aspects of that franchise 
and deliberately subverts them and kind of uses the reader's own perceptions against them in order to push the narrative, both of the book and of the wider range forward. And that's why I love it so much. I mean, it's precisely because of the, as we've said, the over-familiarity of the setting and the almost mundane nature that when it's juxtaposed with the more surreal elements that Morris injects into it, it becomes really unnerving. And 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 to me, it, that's the thing that gripped me about it. I think, the, for me, the most kind of... Um, I'm trying to think of the right way to say it. But the best example of that, perhaps, is the way that it begins with this kind of ultra-familiar sequence where, you know, the TARDIS breaks down. And how many times yeah. have we seen the TARDIS be dragged off course and they've <laughs> crashed and it won't work and, oh, never mind, we'll pop outside and fix it. And we know exactly where we are. We know exactly what we're in for. But the way the book concludes um, is very is is very much, you know, we're, we're leaving it to you, the reader, to do the heavy lifting. Um, we're going to end it on this kind of cliffhanger, really, where the, the, you know, the doctor's in a coma and... Um, and 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 stuff has happened and you're you're kind of by the end of the book you're you're kind of in charge of making sense of everything you're brought into it very much he he lures you in with the familiar and then he subverts what you as a reader are doing um maybe halfway through the book which i think is very sophisticated and in a range that was not always very sophisticated it would have been one of the I think probably the the strongest standout books I didn't read this until just now um so um I don't I'm not able to place it in context because I've still only read about half of the EDAs because I'm a very bad fan but I'm catching up (laughs) now and it's costing me a fortune um (laughs) so I I know that quest all too well (laughs) So what did you make of the 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 clock people? I really you see I really like the abstract and they're extremely simple in their design but terrifying in their alienness and going back to what we were talking about earlier with you know my second story being city of death Morris kind of takes that distur- that little disturbing aside of the throwaway romana sketch mm. and runs with it and he comes up with something, you know, truly unsettling. As I say, they're an abstract. And it's something that Doctor Who excels in. But I think this entry in, entry into the range really does it justice. It, it is absurd to the point of laughable at some point. You, you, you do find yourself off-footed because you can't quite take them seriously at first. They are so alien and yet so rooted in what we know as you know obviously rudimentary timepieces but I think it kind of works it is a again I'm going back to my love for Grant Morrison but it is a very abstract concept and I think it works because he does make them a genuine threat and the way the creatures take over the crew it's it's pretty much nightmare fuel in itself they're unable to escape from their own memories their desires and the end result being that they unwittingly erase their own pasts making them uh, uh, a blank slate to host these entities they've got no say in the matter and they're betrayed by their own emotions 
as you say, it's it's great stuff. Are you aware of? So I basically stumbled across this kind of. I don't know if it's a a well known thing or a a rumor or a complete lie that I read on the internet that apparently they're supposed to be faction paradox. I not I wasn't aware of that. No. Yeah. So apparently. Um, and he didn't want to make it obvious, goes the the quote that I read, which, as I say, may or may not be true. Um, but they're an interpretation of the faction, which for me doesn't work because these are a race of time beings who are involved at some point in this future war, I think. And Sabbath's plot, spoilers, listeners, Sabbath's going to turn <laughs> up. Um, his plot is basically to to sort of they're, they're going to be driven out of the vortex and they're, they're going to appear here and he's going to use the doctor to nobble them basically and i don't i don't like this idea that the faction would be kind of tipped out of the vortex like a disturbed ant's nest um so if that rumor is true i don't i don't like it because i think the faction are better than that yeah i think they've got much more about them than to uh to be played at that point they, these the creatures in here come across as not necessarily malevolent even though they do give that impression at times but they're just you know as it turns out trying to survive but they are very naive in their uh, aspirations and i i can't really reconcile that with the fact that they could be faction i agree with you and i think we should sort of automatically discount that rumor so yeah so let's 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 just decide between us that they're a, a totally brand new invention and i think they could have been realized really well if you'd if you'd been filming this for tv and you'd had them largely in shadow and you you know and you couldn't see like a, a wooden clock sticking out the top of a shirt collar uh which would have been yes. ridiculous <laughs> if you know if there'd been a bit of ambiguity visually i think they they could have been really sinister um, we've mentioned Sabbath, so maybe we should get to that um, and and the the glorious Mister Mistletoe. Yes, I, I was I, I was trying to picture where I had seen that kind of image of mistletoe before. I don't know if it's some kind of just bureaucratic archetype that you occasionally see in, in things like Dad's Army and Heidi High and things. You know, and mm. he is played as both comic relief, but with a really sinister streak. When it comes to the end, and he, again, spoilers, when it comes to the end and he is revealed to be Sabbath, that bit kind of almost feels like a cheat to me. Okay. Because you've taken one character that you've grown to love or grown love to hate and switches it out. And I can see why it's done. But it kind of dispenses with the notion that at the end of it all, you have to remedy this with the only other survivor that's there. And it is, it's kind of a trapdoor, so to speak. I like how it's done and I like how it's a last minute reveal. But I was expecting uh, a little epilogue, as it were, with yeah. mistletoe. Because even when I was rereading it, I know. I can hark back and think at some point, I'm sure someone's revealed to be Sabbath. But reading it this time, I'm thinking it can't be mistletoe. But <laughs> it was, and obviously I was thrown again. So you'll have to excuse the, the ringing church bells. I'm 
quite near a, a oh, church at the end of the street. That's so. very evocative. That's that's wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, again, it was a, a nice, sophisticated way of revealing Sabbath by not, you know, mentioning him by name, but you know, he just sort of suddenly he's got a black leather jacket and and um, yeah, you know who we, who we're looking at. If now, am I right in thinking that Sabbath first appeared in Henrietta Street, or am I hopelessly way off the mark? I think he did have a cameo in. Uh, forgive me if I get this wrong, listeners, but I think he may have had a cameo in Dave Stone's Slow Empire prior to Henrietta Street. But right. I believe the first time he turned up uh, as a named character was was that book, yeah. So he's not he's not made too many appearances then by this point, and he's still a bit of a an exciting sort of novelty. Yeah. I, I, as much as I loved the introduction of Sabbath, and as much as I loved his appearance here, as it went on, and I'm not sure if it was because I was dipping in and out at that point or other things were on my mind, it all became rather convoluted. Mm. But yeah. rereading this now, it's not only has it given me the urge to go and read the EDAs that I haven't read, but it's also given me the urge to go back and read the Sabbath novels and at some point maybe even try and pick up a couple of the uh, the audios that they did as part of the Faction series because now I'm, for some reason, I'm more intrigued upon this reading than I was initially. I think Sabbath is one of those... Um great ideas they had for the books but it's it's one that absolutely wouldn't have worked on tv because you know he's always a fat guy in a suit yeah and as, as soon as you as soon as you get you know any kind of should we say i don't know more than 12 stone 14 stone kind of figure turning up on screen you're like he's sabbath in the same way that uh anthony angley was often quite easy to spot oh, under some of yes. his various disguises <laughs> I do like the fact, though, that they, they that he does add the line where mistletoe shrugs off his coat and the Sabbath coat underneath it, which shouldn't be possible as that coat is bigger than the one that was covering it. <laughs> yeah, there's Again, something it, sort of timey, not timey-wimey, but dimensiony-wenchiony about that. Yeah, it, it, it does. This is why I, like, I love about this. It, it takes a a dip into the absurd, but not to the point where you find it laughable. It goes in the opposite direction. And there were some sections, I mean, obviously my na- naive younger self, when I would come away from the book and I would be genuinely unnerved. Wow. As you say, it's it's very televisual, uh, obviously apart from the, the, the later sections where it gets very gory when they're succumbing to the mustard. But, uh, but yeah. I, I, I've always had a, a great love for the surreal because it doesn't nerve me. And this struck a chord, <laughs> no pun intended, this struck a chord with me. Did you did you love the the kind of metaphor of the, the diving bell for the for for the time dives? I did. Obviously, you know, it's it's very reminiscent well it reminds me of uh 
first men in the moon with chrononium replacing caverite kind of things. Mm. It, it gave me that kind of vibe about it. But I I do love it. I do love it. The entire setup where it's in this like cathedral type space, it it reminds it's it's kind of hard to put into words. I mean, each of us, as we say, overlay our own memories onto books as we read, you know, as we read them. But I can't help notice how many possible influences converge within the book. The cathedral space reminded me very much, I'm not sure if you've seen it, of uh, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Okay, yeah. It's with the, the green liquid, uh, just the vibe. Uh, obviously, there's things, you know, as a, uh, the, it relates back to paintings of Magritte and Dali, obviously. But there's a lot of influence, even though they're not overt references, with the exception of the, you know, aforementioned Magritte. It kind of feels like a treasure trove of pop culture within this book. And I'm not sure if it's a conscious decision on the part of Morris or if I'm giving him too much credit, but would it be taking it too far to suggest that the writing invokes, again, in a kind of metatextual experience, invokes the reader's personal experience from the archetypes that he puts on the page in much the same way that the personal experience of the victims of the creatures lead to their downfall? I mean, there, there, are, there are times where it feels very much like, and again, this, this is probably due to personal experience, it feels very much like a, a Who universe stabber, a Romero zombie movie with the, you know, the shuffling creatures that, that can't be stopped down to the the, the setting, uh, I, I believe they use, because uh, there's a, one of the Romero entries, Day of the Dead, is set in an underground bunker. So while I was reading this, it would flash me back to the aesthetics of that place at times. Mm. What I think it does, it takes a very well-worn base under siege formula and twists it. But other than that, I think it's it's so much more than that. It's incredibly, I, I, I don't wish to sound pretentious and I hope I'm not coming across that way, but it seems incredibly multi-layered despite the initial appearances it's uh, a whodunit it's a horror story it's an exploration almost of the military industrial complex mindset and the pointlessness of war it's a, a deep dive into the perception of reality and i would argue it's also a treatise into the the nature of regret um yeah so i think i think to sort of sum it all up it's a very it's a very assured and confident novel um, where the writer, you know, as we've as we've said, kind of lays out the familiar to hook the, the kind of average Doctor Who reader and then subverts that by giving them more questions than answers and endings that they have to reconcile themselves. And I think for you know for a book that was you know 50 odd books into a run such as this i think that's a really brave and uh and good thing to have done so it is yeah, absolute definitely. standout book for me yeah 
Many thanks to the lovely DK for joining us to chat about Anacrophobia. And now let's find out what the rest of the gang made of the book. Let's go to Kevin first. Okay, so I'll have to admit I struggled a bit with this one. Mainly because for various personal reasons it took me a long time to read it. I had to keep going back over parts and I couldn't remember where I was in the story. I'd read a section and think, hang on, did I miss a bit? Let me skip back a few pages. It's no fault of the story, but in some ways I could relate to the Doctor's explanation of going backwards in time. It's like going uphill. And even though this was an eighth Doctor story, I really felt at times that it could have easily worked out as a third Doctor adventure. You've got a military base, people trapped and being picked off one by one and transformed into hideous creatures, even an officious bowler-hatted government dog's body. All it needed was the Doctor to start rubbing his neck and calling the Sergeant a ham-fisted bun vendor. At one point, Mistletoe utters the phrase, business is business, and I wondered if he was going to accompany Madame Delilah in a verse or two from The Ultimate Adventure. Unlike a Pertwee serial, the chapters were long and multi-scened and chopped backwards and forth, building the tension up and up. I can totally see what the author was trying for with the time effect, these poor unfortunates experiencing backflashes of their past and the confusion in their minds building. It's all very disorientating. And there were some excellent cliffhangers too where you can just hear the theme music crashing in at the end. The end of chapter 6, where the clock people intone, we have arrived, or chapter 11, where the Doctor appears to be overcome and he's transformed. Particular favourites. It's also not a book that holds back on the disturbing imagery either. When the clock people start to die from the mustard gas, skin covered in raw sores and blisters and clock faces oozing blood as they're cracked open, gaggy mouths frothing with foam as hands grasping at throats. It's all suitably gruesome, and as it should be for a horrible weapon that was used in a terrible war. And in terms of the enemy and their nefarious plans, well, perhaps that's a little bit more vague. I'm still not entirely sure I know what they were trying to accomplish, apart from converting everyone to clock-faced superspreaders. I did like the way they converted people, though, forcing them to change their own history and thereby creating a paradox. Even if the Doctor's solution to his own conversion was fairly obvious once it was revealed the air period of amnesia. So, all in all, a solid novel. But here's the thing. I feel like I'm Sam Beckett, and my brain has been Swiss cheese when I stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator. I can't help but think I missed something by not having read the previous books. Yet. Fitz and Angie clearly have a long history of the Doctor. But I know nothing of it. Why has the Doctor only got one heart? Who removed the other one? Who did Mistletoe turn into? Clearly he's an enemy they recognise. And who are Mistletoe's business partners? Is it the faction paradox? There's a lot I don't know. And it could be some time before we go back in time to get the answers. I hope I can still remember the events of Lacrophobia when we eventually get there. Hi, thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, so, Anacrophobia. This one is actually the last uh, book I read. I've been reading the Eighth Doctor Adventures in order, and I finished this one around October last year, around Halloween, which is the ideal time to read it, because this is, uh, I feel like the, the general sort of reputation it has is of the one of the spookiest, scariest horror, like uh, Eighth Doctor Adventure next to, you know, Idris of Wasp, like, and others like that. And it definitely has the feeling of, like, the thing, especially is the, like, classic horror thing it feels like the most to me. With the whole base under siege and the freezing winter and all the body horror with the clock-faced people. 
Um, and it's a very interesting bit of horror with, like, respect to how it treats time and time travel and sort of a proto-time war or a part, partial time war. And I love seeing in, in the Doctor Who books and Doctor Who in general how different authors, like, approach the idea of time. And this one's a very, you know, horrifying, horrific look at it, which could even be uh, with the way that the setting of the book and the whole horrible eternal war is sort of fabricated out of the TARDIS crew's subconscious guilt, fears, anxieties. You can see that as part of the doctor's fears bleeding into it, which is a fascinating sort of bit of character work. And that, that's one of the best parts of the horror of it, is the way it works with the different characters, you know, fears, and, uh, like, puts them all into the environment without making it feel like it's completely fabricated, you know? It feels like it could be its own real thing, its own real story, as well as being, you know, built out of those characters, Fitz, Angie, and the Doctor, and especially, like, the inclusion of Angie's, uh you know, capitalism and anxieties around that into the setting, which seems the way the different authors have been trying to try to include her uh, job as a futures trader is sometimes interesting. Either they ignore it or they try and figure out a way to have it factor into the story. And this one was very much like she's she knows the inner workings of the horrible capitalistic machine, and now that's got to be a part of the setting they're in. I do think sometimes the characterization suffered for the sort of, uh, wait, you're telling me that capitalism wants an endless war and constant, like, austerity? That's crazy. Why would they do that? Like, just characters being a bit less, uh, you know, swift on the uptake than they usually would be, especially the doctor, just to sort of have those little speeches in there, which I appreciate, but do sort of break character sometimes. Uh, I'm, mainly, though, this was just a very good horror Doctor Who story, and I remember like looking through my notes and stuff on it, and my bookmarks while I was getting ready to do this little review. I was just constantly saying, I'm having a blast with this one. Oh my god, like, I'm having a fun time. Look at this. And, I don't know, maybe... Many people have, like, it does have its genuinely scary moments, but I also just am one of those people who ha has a lot of fun with horror. And it's also got a bit of, like, the Scooby-Doo element with the whole Sabbath in disguise. That one was, I, I like, throughout my, I was like, that's gotta be, there's one too many heart jokes. Oh my god, it's gotta be him with Mr. Mistletoe. And I am very much looking forward to this apparently being a a common theme in the next few books from what I hear and when I take the series back up again I'm gonna be just constantly suspicious of different characters being Sabbath from now on uh yeah thank you and hope you guys enjoyed the book too thanks there to Kevin and Eliza who's joining us for the first time and there's only one more person to hear from uh, on this episode and that's the BBC Doctor Who books author Jonathan Morris. Uh, my memories of writing Doctor Who and Aquaphobia. Uh, I sort of, I'll just go off on a little bit of a ramble here. 
um, what do I remember? It's 20 years ago, over 20 years ago I wrote it. So um, I think if I went back and read it again, it would all come flooding back because, uh, you know, these when you write a book, it it triggers lots of memories about the time and all the stuff I was thinking as I wrote it. it all, it's all in the book. I'm sure it'll all come back to me if I read it. Um, I was trying to... I think the whole point was to write a scary story because I'd done Festival of Death, which was a sort of a comedy and it was a, a bit of a sort of a TV pastiche thing. Um, very sort of what it would be like if it was on television. And... And Acrophobia was the same, It was, but it was what it would be like if it was on television in 2001. How, how would I bring it back? And Anacrophobia is how I would have brought it back. It was, it was cheap um, and scary. Um, not a lot of humour, but that's because I was just pushing away against Festival of Death. I wanted to show that I could do something different. That it wasn't just going to be uh, you know, doing comedies and pastiches and stuff. Um, the starting idea was um, I, when I was about 15, I went to an art gallery in Amsterdam and I saw that there's a sculpture called um, The Beanery by a guy called Edward Keinholz. And it's a, you know, you go to an art gallery and there's paintings and there's statues and stuff. Uh, but this is different. This is uh, a room you go into, and it's like um, a very small, um, claustrophobic American pub or bar, whatever they call them, um, and where there's it's playing the sound of a pub, and you see all the patrons of the, of this bar, but their faces have been replaced by clocks, <laughs> and you can, I think, my memory is you can even shut the door behind you and you're in this place. It's a totally immersive work of art. And um, it's free, freaky and it's brilliant. And it stayed with me. I loved it and it stayed with me. I forgot the name of it. I forgot where I'd seen it. But um, it was just a wonderful sort of um, experience. And years later, in 2000 and I went back there and it's still there you can still visit it and it's still fantastic and there's a whole other ex extra bit that Kynox has done which is a whole sort of street as well that you can go into so anyway so that was where that came from um, though I late, later realised when I was thinking about the cover which is a sort of Magritte pastiche with a face replaced by a broken clock with a bit of blood, which I designed. It was all my idea. Uh, well, well, Magritte probably <laughs> takes to some credit because it's his one with the apple in front of the face, isn't it? Um, I later realised, I think even after it had been published, that I'd sort of, oh God, I was channeling that bit of city, in the City of Death with the, the paper and um, with the, the guy in the cafe sketching Romana. Which, honestly, I don't think had occurred to me when I came up with the idea for the book, when I was writing the book. Um, but yeah, it's a coincidence. And obviously that must have lodged in my sort of unconscious in some way. And so when it came out, I was going, oh, this is about that thing in City of Death. And it's like, if you want it to be, 
that's cool um when i when i was writing it um i was very keen to get a good structure a good sort of movie structure and justin richards had recommended um the book uh story by robert mckee which has lots of good stuff in it but there's 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 also stuff which is stating the, the obvious and there's also stuff which is wildly unhelpful because it's all it's a book on how to fix a story that doesn't work it's not really that good on how to write a story that works it's it's a sort of a script editor's book if anything um but i worked out a really good structure for that i based a lot of it on um justin's book the burning which i was very impressed by because i think that has a perfect brilliantly structured book um and so that's the structure of that and you know it's sort of a base under siege but then in the final act you go to this city where everyone's turned into clocks and then you realize the whole thing is this sort of not particularly great sort of capitalist anti-capitalist nonsense i don't know it's um you know i was young <laughs> and um left wing and all those sort of things you know you you sort of because it's because it's there's this vision because they defaulted on a sort of payment or i don't know it's nonsense isn't it um <laughs> but it means the baddies the, the people have turned into tills you know they're such capitalists they've turned into money counting machines i don't know i mean it just seemed a nice image i'm not i think the fact that it makes no sense is what's cool about it i don't know that's my that's what i'd say um the book was part of an arc yes it was uh the, the sabbath arc for um and i was very excited to be part of this because in the in the forums in the sort of jade pagoda and stuff people go which books do i need to read to follow the arc which books count because it was a sort of attitude going the books that didn't have the arc in didn't progress the arc didn't have the didn't count and people would skip those and it would be a thing you know with the um uh that companion that was a tardis whose compassion people go what books do i need to read for the compassion arc and people go well you need to read the first one this one in the middle and the last one and you can skip through it that's just and that's like you know that's kind of awful um but I wanted to go, well, I don't want my book to be one that's skipped. I want, you know, Sabbath to turn up at the end. Um, so people go, oh, this is an essential, essential book, part of the arc. You need to follow it. You need to buy this book and read it in order to have any understanding of what's going on. Um, so that's why I wanted to be more part of the arc. That, um, because up there had been a Paul Mars book and a Mark Clapham book and then i was followed by a lance parkin book i think um so in preparation I, justin sent me um the, the lawrence miles book um henrietta street the adventurous of henrietta street um which i thought was you know marvelous extremely well written and extremely sort of exciting and daring and provocative and imaginative and oh yeah great in so many ways i'm not going to sort of hold back on um on the praise but the, my problem following it up was that it was written 
from a sort of unreliable narrator uh, deliberately and deliberately sort of creating contradictory versions of events which if you're starting an arc you sort of need to nail these things down and it wasn't nailed down it was um uh you know even what sabbath looked like wasn't really um defined explicitly in the book i think you had you had different differing accounts so i included in an acrophobia flashback um to um Henrietta street just so that there would be a definite version of events so people can go oh that's that's the version that happened that's the one that's what we need to pick up it's um oh it's, it's sabbath removing the doctor's heart or something isn't it yes let's see that's suddenly come back um so to make it clear yes that's what happened um because sometimes with arcs these things sort of get complicated and vague and contradictory and which is inevitable you've got different writers and stuff and everyone's sort of writing very quickly not getting paid very much you know <laughs> these things happen um so what else there's one other thing i was sort of i was living in uh kilburn when i wrote it in um uh, flats called um taranbray i was in the flat above dermot o'leary of um x-factor fame um sometimes i pass him on the stairs and we sort of nod at each other going live in this house yep yeah, i live in this house too um and uh with my um girlfriend at the time and uh there's a thing when you're writing a story um i think of it as you know like a it's like um an electric motor and a dynamo are the same thing but they work in revert one one is the reverse of the other you know one turns movement into electric current the other turns electric current into movement and i think of a novel being the same way that all the stuff that i want someone to get out of the book is stuff that i have to put into the book and that's the sort of in terms of you know emotion so if i want people to read the book and laugh when i'm writing it i have to be in i have to make myself laugh um if i want people reading the book to be moved and cry when i'm writing it i have to be feeling that too and certainly when i was writing um touched by an angel the final chapters of that you know I had tears streaming down my cheeks and stuff i was i was i was more upset than anyone um and with an acrophobia i wanted people to be scared you know it is basically you know a ghost story really it's a sort of mr james thing that's what i was going for um more than stephen king it's it's a ghost story um and so i'd be writing these, this book at like 11 o'clock at night or something really sort of trying to freak myself out and trying to scare myself and my memory is that my girlfriend would then sort of come into the flat and i'd be sort of engrossed tappity tap tapping away uh lost on my own sort of world of doctor who and sort of come into the room and i go and i just jump out of my skin and scream just because someone had walked into the room because i was so um i was so involved immersed in the um the scary world of um, the book um so those are those are my memories of writing uh, doctor who and acrophobia uh i could 
go back and read it and give a blow-by-blow account of the chapters, but I think you've got enough. So with huge thanks to Jonathan Morris, that brings this episode of Rural Stories in the End to a close. I'm going to have to close the window, actually. There seems to be some autumn mist coming in. More about that in the next episode.